0: Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at TNTradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. This is The Chris Smith Show on today's News Talk,
1: TNT Radio. Hope you're well. I'm broadcasting from Sydney right now. It is something like just gone four o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday. It is around about dawn in London right now, and it is a huge day for a replay into the chaos of COVID-19 in the UK today. Yes, a big day, because Boris Johnson is expected to take to the witness box. Maybe not early today, but sometime this very day, and he's going to reject claims That he didn't concentrate on the COVID threat. This is exactly what has been emerging from some of the testimony at the COVID inquiry in London that Boris was distracted by a whole heap of other things, including writing a book about William Shakespeare. I'm not saying this in a derogatory way about Boris Johnson, but you wouldn't put it past him, would you? That in the middle of the strife of COVID 19, he would be sitting away and focusing far more. On William Shakespeare. But that's just Boris. He's eclectic, he's eccentric. The former Prime Minister will cite diaries showing that he went back to number 10 for meetings when he gives evidence to the COVID inquiry this week. Now, the days in which he's going to give evidence, I said it will be late Monday. That was what I read on Friday. It's now changed the earlier edition of The Telegraph is now saying that it's Wednesday and Thursday when he'll be giving evidence. So there's been a delay. Uh, Mr. Johnson's team believe the line of questioning about his time away from Downing Street um, is a red herring, but the defence is sure to be scrutinised by the inquiry's legal team, which has at points expressed alarm at the lack of written proof of work on COVID during that period. In other words, um, there's no proof that he was actually focused on COVID-19. Hugo Keith KC, the Inquiry's Chief Counsel. Have you been watching him, by the way, Hugo Keith? Fascinating. You know, whenever I see a Royal Commission, it's always the Chief Inquiry Counsel that fascinates me more than even the witnesses. But anyway, Hugo Keith is a character. He's asked previous witnesses why, between February 14 and February 24, 2020, Boris Johnson did not receive more COVID material. During that time, which coincided with the school half term in England, the threat from COVID was becoming clearer. A nationwide lockdown was announced the following month. At his two-day appearance, Mr Johnson will reject claims that he was not engaged in COVID policy during the 10-day period, according to an ally familiar with preparations. He's expected to cite diary entries that show he returned to Downing Street on a number of occasions during the period. It will also be claimed that he had his ministerial red box with him during his time away from number 10. Uh, If asked, Mr. Johnson will dismiss the idea that half term was spent writing a book on Shakespeare rather than engaging with the emerging pandemic. We can only believe what he says, I guess. We can only believe what he says. Uh, in Australia, the Reserve Bank raised interest rates in November for the 13th time in 18 months, as most Australians would know, taking the cash rate to a 12-year high of 4.35%. Now, while inflation in October moderated to 4.9%, so all of us mortgage holders could actually take a breath, the annual level still remains well above the RBA's 2 to 3% target. Now, There's been some statements made about this by ANZ Chief Executive Shane Elliott. He has warned Australians to expect interest rates to stay high for years with no relief in sight. Isn't he a Grinch at this time of the year? Mr Elliott warned borrowers interest rates were likely to stay high for years to come with cuts unlikely in 2024 or even 2025. No cuts in interest rates in Australia, despite what the OECD said on Friday. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, He said, you have to stand back and forget next year. Just think about over the next five years, he told the Australian newspaper. He said, federal government spending and high immigration were adding to price pressures. Can someone please just thank Anthony Albanese for us? Because he was the one who freely and easily signed off on so many paychecks and wage increases right across the board when he first came to power. And you wonder why we're going against the tide of the UK and the USA when it comes to inflation right now. That's the fault of the weak need Prime Minister we have in Australia, Anthony Albanese. This is TNT Radio.
0: Talk that matters. For once, we just need to do what's best for the same country and not what's best for the world. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
1: All right, I've got the host on ADH.TV, in Australia's greatest commercial radio news talkback practitioner himself, Alan Jones. Alan, welcome to TNT Radio.
2: Thank you. Look, I'm no fan of that Shane Elliott, I can tell you. But, uh, I mean, however, when he talks about government spending and high immigration, leading to an inability to address inflation is 100 percent correct but of course Chalmers tells everybody to cut back on spending and the greatest spenders and we'll come to this in a moment i'm sure we're we talking about renewable energy the greatest spenders are the government themselves and yeah. they'll chuck billions billions of dollars anywhere just to try and get to their ideological ends notwithstanding the damage this is going to do to the economy and you know high people don't understand high immigration but if you're going to they've issued now 650,000 visas, student visas. So that's 650,000 are coming in. There's another migrant intake. That's orthodox migrant intake of another 620,000. So that's 1.2 million people. Now, when those people come in, they are making demands on goods and services. And the more people that make a demand on the bananas or the more people want a home or the more people that want to buy something from Bunnings, the price goes up. Now, I was only saying the other day, I had to go to, I mean, this is laughable, I had to go to Brisbane on Thursday. I finished up not going. And I couldn't get a Virgin flight that suited me, that got me there on time. So I went to Qantas, Qantas, and I was asked. Now, dumb people like you and I would think there's a standard fare from Sydney to Brisbane. Well, no longer. So if you want to go at three o'clock, that'd be $1,500 one way, one way, (laughs) $1,500 You're talking about inflation, 1500 But if you want to go at 4 o'clock, that'll be $1,300. And if you want to go at 6 o'clock, it'll be $1,000. And I oh. said, thank you very much, but I'll be going on neither. This is fitting. Yeah. Now, who allows this? I mean, Albanese doesn't allow Qatar to come and fly more routes in Australia. But this yeah. is the point, isn't it? These things are inflationary. And when you start bringing all these migrants in and all these students in, and their demand for product is such that the product price increases. These are essentially inflationary. And the government is the architect of all of this. There's not a single thing that anyone could tell me who's listening to this broadcast that this government has done that make Australians feel better as a result. In other words, oh, I'm so much better off because they have is Prime Minister for what? For what? I know he's visited 30 countries and shaken hands and he's probably taken more photos than anybody else. But I mean, that doesn't help the poor bloke who's out there battling in Struggle Street to try and make ends meet at Christmas time. So those points are right. I mean, government spending, I mean, now they're going to, in renewables, he can't make his renewable target. I know you you indicated you were going to talk about this today, but he, he can't make his renewable targets, so he's going to chuck billions of dollars at renewable projects of our money. Who told Bowen that he could use our money to reach his ideological stupidity? Yep. Billions to be thrown, under it by us, sign unseen, no cost-benefit analysis, no explanation, no cap-on costings, any amount. Just print the money. Just print the money. But we have no, there is no study available anywhere, take the CSIRO, which might tell us, okay, look it up, tell us the effectiveness or efficiency of renewables vis-à-vis coal or gas or nuclear or whatever. No study of any kind. Just as I might add, there is no study on the risk of electric vehicles. And so we've got yep. them blowing up with lithium and ion batteries. I should just say, by the way, that Janine, to whom I spoke last week on this program, in relation to the Murray-Darling system. And oh, the yeah. other, we have We have been in touch, and she emailed me, and I emailed her, and she, I indicated to her that we will be addressing the issue. So, Janine, thank you for that. Great. And we answered it. But, I mean, this is the point, isn't it? So they're going to spend... As I said, to get his, for, see, the bloke, to get to this, there's two targets we have to remember to just keep it really simple, to keep it really simple about this renewable energy rubbish. Firstly, he's promised that according to the Paris Agreement, Of course, I believe the Paris Agreement should be ripped up, but this Paris Agreement, an agreement made in Paris, God knows how many years ago, and the commitment was oh, you know, with all hairs on our chest, we're going to get a reduction of carbon dioxide emissions, on 2005 levels, a reduction of 43% by 2030. That was one of, the, one of the commitments. So that's the carbon dioxide emissions when you hear this 43%. So we're going to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. So I don't know what we're going to do, take cars off the road, stop animals from breaking wind. I have no idea how they're going to get there, but this is what they're going to do. 43% reduction of 2005 levels of carbon dioxide emissions. The other commitment he's made is that he'll get Australia running on 82% renewables by 2030. Now, 2030 is what? So six years away. 82% renewables. Now, how are we going to get there? 82% renewables. Amongst everything else he says, he says we're going to have to put up 22,000, 22,500 watt solar panels every day every day between now and 2030. 22,000, see where they went up today? No, nowhere. 22,500 watt solar panels. This is Bowen's commitment to get to 82% renewables. We'll need 47 megawatt wind turbines every month, every month between now and 2030, 47. And well, stop laughing, it's bloody serious. (laughs) We'll need 10,000 kilometers On transmission lines. In other words, you've got to get this stuff from where it's being made, if it is being made, this electricity is being made, to the grid. So 10,000 kilometres of power lines. Where are they going to go? Over prime agricultural land. At a cost
1: of $100 billion.
2: Well, worse than that, worse than that, they may compulsorily acquire it from farmers. And if you do that in New South Wales under the Constitution, the government doesn't have to provide any compensation whatsoever. You can compulsorily acquire. See, Commonwealth... The Commonwealth, if they compulsory acquire, have to pay compensation. New South Wales constitution and the Queensland constitution, if you compulsory acquire, you don't have to pay compensation. So the farmers are up in arms. I'll never, ever, it'll never, ever happen. But I mentioned, I think, last week that in Queensland alone, there's one area of prime agricultural land in from Gladstone where they've got 9,000 acres of solar farms. Nine, that's bigger than most people's property, rural property ownerships. Nine. So who's going to feed Australia if you can't grow your crops? And when 9,000 acres of solar panels go kaput, where do you put them? Where do you bury them? And where do we get them from? China. (laughs) Hello? The Chinese economy virgins, or we're dependent upon them for solar panels and wind turbines. This bloke, this bloke is dangerous, Bowen. Yeah. Very, very dangerous. And to get there, he made the speech last week to get there because they can't meet these targets, then we're going to chuck tens of billions of dollars of your money at these renewable projects, and you won't be told anything about it. There'll be no cost-benefit analysis, there'll be no cap on the amount of your money that'll be spent, and there'll be, oh, by the way, there'll be no restriction on overseas investors either. Let them all in, let them all in to own our energy projects just so that Bowen can reach these unreachable renewable energy targets. And That's of course, this is all happening. Mad. It's dangerous why this is happening, of course, because he's out there saying, and we'll get there, we'll get there. We'll get to 82% renewables. So we'll co- clo- co- close down the coal-fired power stations. We'll close them down and we'll leave the gas in the ground. So we close down the coal-fired power stations. We leave the gas in the ground, but we can't reach the renewable energy targets. I mean, this is an economic suicide note. Who is going to keep the lights on then?
1: Yeah, exactly. And then today, they've got all the superannuation funds in. Um, they represent $2.5 trillion, and they mm. want all of them just to, to spend money to invest in crucial sectors of the economy, mainly um, renewables, of course, after our mm. agreement in uh, at COP28 in Dubai to triple the amount of renewables we produce. What but isn't it funny, 20- Alan- Go on, you, you go, you go. What, what a ridiculous well, promise that is. What the hell is King Charles? Can you imagine
2: Queen Elizabeth, his mother, at some climate change conference yep. promoting this rubbish about renewable energy and climate change and global warming and the world's going to win? And this is what the king... Oh, and I mean, Prince William's not much better. Right. They, they, they propagate this stuff. And how many thousands of people were there and there was Bowen and all the rest of them, but I mean superannuation money. Can I remind you, Chalmers, belongs to us. So yeah. that is our money, two point five trillion. Now, if you want to spend it, it's not yours to spend, and you don't have a mandate from us to spend it. Yeah. Now, those yeah. fund managers ought to be able to say, ought to be saying to the government, "Well, you can, you can lobby us all you like, but we're going to have to go back to our members and tell them explicitly." what you are wanting to do with our money and i'm not sure our members will agree that is our money 2.5 yeah. $2. trillion dollars it is not Chama's money to raid
1: yeah and i'm very very uh, glad that emmanuel macron the french president has urged the australian parliament to lift its nuclear ban he said australia had foolishly isolated itself from its Orcus allies which is so true but 22 countries have agreed to triple their nuclear capacity alan and our climate change minister, Chris Bowen, would have just sat in his seat and put on that ridiculous smile that he has. They are fools.
2: Well, look, I just want to say something about this. Uh, everything that Macron says is correct on this front, and everything you just said about Bowen is correct. But we oughtn't to be duped into believing. See, a lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, coal and gas, forget about it, nuclear is the answer. And, listen Nuclear is down the track. We don't even have the legislative capacity to go ahead with nuclear power. If we change the law tomorrow and we won't, the parliament will rise this week and so nothing will happen in 2023. The parliament won't sit until March next year. So you can forget about nuclear for the moment. We all know the world sees nuclear and they're building nuclear power plants all over the world except here. But we've got to keep the lights on and the machinery going, and industry operating, and we can only do that with fossil fuels. Renewable energy will not power the nation. So we ought to let Bowen and these people off the hook by saying, oh, well, yes, you can shut down coal and gas because nuclear is the answer. We cannot close coal and gas until such time there is a proven resource available to replace them, and we don't have it. And to talk about nuclear, that's down the track. To talk about renewables, it'll never happen. So we're back to our dependence on fossil fuels and the argument that, oh, it's carbon dioxide we're trying to prevent. And as I said at a rally last week, that's 0.04% of the atmosphere. You'd have to have rocks in your head to think that a particulate matter, a gas which is invisible, which is 0.04% of the atmosphere, is causing the kind of damage that these lunatics are attributing to it.
1: Let's take a brief break. I want to come back and talk about Josh Frydenberg and John Laws with you. Alan Jones, after a break on TNT Radio. Jeremy Nell
0: on TNT Radio. Being South African, I know the situation and it's incredibly dire. Basically, our farmers, mostly white, have been under attack for years and years and years. And when I say attack, I mean that physically, don't I?
1: Yes. um, Since the dawn of democracy in South Africa, Because since 1994, we had an average of uh, one farm attack every second day. Um, So it averages around uh, 175 to 190 farm attacks every year. And we had a farm murder on average every fifth day. Um, But over the last few months, both those numbers have picked up. Murders in other sectors of society are not accompanied by the same levels of brutality and torture as you will find in farm murders.
0: Jeremy Nell on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. is a person to look at. And then we go find out what crime you did. FBI! What?
2: Our focus is shifting. Our main priority as a bureau is going to be domestic terrorism.
0: It really paints anybody who's right of center. If you're a pro-life, pro-family Catholic, they define you as radical. These are anti-government. We have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Violent extremists, and they must be dealt with.
2: We can do anything we want.
0: Without CO2, the world stops breathing. CO2 sustains all life on Earth. Government, the WEF, and the elite believe humans are the carbon they really want to be rid of. Today's News Talk TNT Radio.
1: I've got Alan Jones with me now. Alan, will the former treasurer.
2: Just on that bloke there. there. See, CO2, that's right. Carbon dioxide is the source of all plant life. You're speaking now, carbon dioxide's coming out of your mouth. Carbon dioxide, we don't have enough of it. Everyone's trying to limit it. If we could get carbon dioxide in the, the, you know, the plateaus of Africa, we'd have have grass growing everywhere. We'd end the kind of starvation that exists. This is a nonsense. Carbon dioxide is a sort of source of all plant life. And just one comment on another piece I heard there during the break. That is so true, isn't it? You know, we don't go after the people who corrupt the election process. We go after the people who ask questions about it. Yes. Frydenberg, now I'll tell you something. Frydenberg will win, and I think he'll come back. He would win uh, a Kuyong election tomorrow, next year, next month. What has changed? It's exactly the same reason as Sharma has won the pre-selection for the Liberal Party. These are people who now understand the geopolitical environment, and the existential threat that this islamic uh, militant islamic behavior means to the world lose israel and we're in big big trouble i'm not in favor of ceasefires or any that sort of nonsense i'm not in favor of anything that allows hamas to regroup hamas does as much damage to the palestinians as it does to the israelis and the notion that you could actually have the media and all these foolish protesters and kids out of school believing that the hostage swap means, oh, Hamas will let us have one hostage back who are innocent people who were brutalized and should never, ever have been taken as hostages, but we'll have one of them back for three of these Muslim criminals that are in jail in Israel. These are murderers and rapists. So three of them get out and we get one back. Now, Frydenberg has behind the scenes been arguing this case. And now people are starting to understand in his electorate and beyond the worth of Frydenberg. And the the problem here is with the Liberal Party. You know, the the federal executive of the Liberal Party should be saying to Jacinda Price, now listen, I mean, you're in the upper house, you're in the Senate. We need you down here. We've got a seat here. We'll get this plate to go. You'll come and you'll be the automatic candidate here. You won't have to worry. The margins are good. The federal executive of the Liberal Party should be saying to Josh Frydenberg, yes, we need you. Now, how can we facilitate your re-entry? The federal executive of the Liberal Party, yes, should be saying to Abbott, you're a hero out here in Western Sydney. We'll stick you in a seat out here in Western Sydney. If David Cameron can come back from the prime Prime ministership to be the foreign minister in Britain, then Abbott can come back from the prime ministership to represent Mm. the people in Western Sydney who think he's an absolute hero. So the federal executive of the party should be saying, we're going to stack our party with talent, that will represent all sections of the Liberal Party, and these are the people we'll be bringing in. Now, instead of all this ambiguity about, well, should they come? Shouldn't they come? But look, Freidenberg will win uh, Kuyong if he elects to go because elects to run because the circumstances internationally have changed, and he's a man of scholarship and ability. We don't have either in very <laughs> in very significant proportions in the Parliamentary Liberal Party.
1: Your master plan for the Liberal Party is quite inspired. Um I hope they get the message.
2: No, no, they know everything. You know that. They know everything. <laughs> yes, they see, do. See, once upon a, once upon a time that was the case when you had Distinguished people like Sir John Atwell as being the federal president, and they were people of eminence. And this is what did happen, and that's what happened in the Conservative Party. I might add in Britain. Now I know they're going through a bit of a trough at the moment, but you know you could stand, and say, Ah oh, Chris Smith, I'm going to put my name forward, and that's and Mr. Smith, look, I know you live at Luton, but uh, we don't really see you as the kind of candidate that would appeal to that Luton <laughs> electorate. On the other hand, uh, you're on a list here. And if the opportunity comes where we see a demographic that is suited to your scholarship and your background and your interests. And so they then say, yeah, well, you take you take the seat of Norfolk up there. That's what you're tailoring the candidate to the kind of demographic demographic arrangement that exists in those particular electorates. We don't do any of this here. We let the factions take charge and good people no longer uh, have an automatic entry into the parliament. And we need them more than we ever have.
1: Yeah, sure do, which is sad. Now, final question, final issue. An old colleague of yours, uh, a friend, an occasional foe, John Laws, has celebrated his 70th year on Australian radio. Uh, another nasty colleague of ours has reigned on his parade, probably for his own edification, but that is so typical. What have you got to say about the 70-year well, commemoration for John Laws?
2: Firstly, I don't think we're ever foes. That was a sort of a media fiction, uh, because we barely met one another. I was so uh, I was uh, I was up until nine, and then he would be nine until twelve, and so. on. Look, this man is an ornament to broadcasting. He his seventy years is unbelievable. Um, he's been successful a because he loves what he's doing, b because in the talkback medium he was really interested always in listening to the bloke out there and represented the bloke out there. Did he get it right? No. Did I get it right? No. Were we always right? No. Are you always right? No. Of course you make mistakes. And that doesn't mean to say it, it limits or to limit the recognition that should be given to him for an extraordinary piece of broadcasting longevity. And, he, and he's still doing it now. And they say to him, why do you do it? Oh, I do it because I love it. And there can be no greater uh, ingredient for success than be doing the things that you love doing. And he has made an indelible contribution to broadcasting at a time when, you know, it it had a greater, uh, shall we say, a greater impact on the community than now. Unfortunately, there are all these other platforms where people think they get their information and it's social media and all that sort of stuff, which I'm not too sure strengthens the capacity of people to get information. John Laws, who was a direct broadcaster to the people, he said, hello world, you know, hello world, and I, I don't think he knew or I knew whether the world was listening, but what he meant was, I'm out here talking to you, and there was an open line ring in, and he listened to them, and he told them they're idiots and fools when they're idiots and fools, and when they weren't, he then engaged them and talked to them. So... You know it's a phenomenal contribution you can't deny it i mean it's just and
1: when you stuff. were on breakfast and he was on mornings that was mm-hmm. one of the most if not the most formidable partnership mm-hmm. in talkback yeah. radio history
2: yes yeah, unbeatable. it was really it was and you know it it was and we, we also we came at different st- different standpoints he'd often say to me send me a message and he said what was that you said about the Senate I didn't understand? And so I sent my note back. Don't worry about it. You let me talk about the Senate. You talk about the truckies. truckies queued up out there that can't gain access because there's been an accident on the road. And that was where that was when he was at his best, you know the truckies had talked to him, and he loved it. I mean, you know, people forget he was long John laws. I mean he, he was he was a, a formidable amateur poet and a singer. And mm. they were way, way back, you know, before your listeners I suppose, were born. but I mean, um, he had he had records on the on the top 40, or whatever you called it. And, uh, and he wrote sort of poetry, sometimes it was a bit of doggerel, but people found it very, very interesting. He was a man of the world, a man of the people, John Laws. And that's, you know, you don't get that success unless the people embrace you. And he's had a lot of success and the people embraced him. And, he and ought, have you got, he, have you he got a message for, for
1: those who want to knock him? Well, I
2: don't, I, John, I, I never worry about the knockers. I don't dignify them. So I've had plenty of them and I've never, ever given them the oxygen that they think they deserve. So I don't, I don't know who the knockers are and I don't talk about them. Uh, he doesn't need to worry about the knockers either because out there there's one audience that understands and that's the public who've listened to him and they know exactly from Australia-wide the contribution he's made to their lives. I mean, he's made them laugh at a time when you need to laugh. You know, he's made them cry when you need to cry. He's informed them when they need to be informed. That's all you have to do. And, uh, you know, I, I wrote him a note uh, to tell him what I thought of him. And in fact, I look, I won't I happy he doesn't mind me saying, but I took John and Jody out to lunch to celebrate the 70th 70, 70 anniversary and gave him a note at the lunch. I said, read this later. But to just say to him, listen, you might be told this, but you occupy an indelible place in the history of Australian broadcasting. And whenever there are chapters written about it, your name will be there. You can't do any better right. than that.
1: How fantastic. That is good to hear. Mate, thank you very much for your contribution. Thank you very much for supporting me on TNT Radio. Um, You're off for a a well-earned Christmas break. Thank you. And have a Merry Christmas, Christmas. Alan.
2: Thank you. And you too, Chris. And all the best to you and your family and to all your listeners.
1: You too, mate. Thank you very much. All the best. Right, Chris. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. There you go. Alan Jones, host on ADH.TV. And what a wonderful gesture to the great John Laws. And together, they were the most formidable partnership in talk radio. Have a look at the statistics and work it out. I've got to get to a break and get you some news. Renee Heath on the other side of the news on TNT Radio. TNT Radio News.
0: Are you ready for some awesome news? (laughs) One, two, three, four.
1: Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. The US Defence Chief has warned Israel is heading for a strategic defeat in Gaza as it drives the civilian population into the arms of the enemy. There are new fears the war could widen following a major escalation in the Red Sea. North Korea has threatened to take out American spacecraft if the US interferes with its new spy satellite. And more than 400 children under the age of eight have been rescued from a child sex trafficking syndicate in Africa.
0: Why not give TNT Radio a follow? We're on all major social platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Getter. Help us get the word out as we cover the biggest topics of our time right here on today's News Talk. TNT Radio. TNT Radio.
1: Yeah, so there you go. Um, Really interesting words from Alan about John Laws. And he's right about the fact that we out in listener land always thought there was something between them in terms of disagreement or objection um or various um uh clashes over topics etc but none of that you just heard heard from him there um there wouldn't be an occasion to go out to lunch if there was a long term disagreement if they were foes and that's fantastic that uh alan took him out and uh did what he could to help Lawsy celebrate 70 years. It's great to hear. I've got the Liberal Party's Upper House MP in Victoria for the seat of Eastern Victoria, Renee Heath, with us right now. Renee, welcome to TNT Radio.
3: Thank you for having me. How are you going?
1: I'm doing very well. And you?
3: Going very well. I've received a parcel in the mail and a beautiful card. Um, that's so, good. You, you got my... From and for those listening, it's it's Chris's book on a beautiful card, which is um a postcard from Australia Post. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you.
1: I couldn't find any other paper to write <laughs> yeah. on. That's all. Well.
3: <laughs> I love it.
1: <laughs> that's great. All right. Um, and I've read your documents on the stalking recommendations, and I've sent you an email about it. We should talk about it at another time when the story becomes a little bit more active, but. Uh, Interesting what they have recommended, but I think there are probably other steps that they could take, but for another time. Now, just in terms of your region, uh, the news out of East Gippsland isn't all that good. Um, Some serious flooding. Where's all that up to at this stage at the start of the week, Renee?
3: Yeah, there's an incredible amount of water. The three main um, warning areas that are still at watch and act are near Orbost, Bairnsdale and Sale. But the latest reports say luckily the water is subsiding and it should continue Uh, to do so overnight. Right. Um, I've spoken to quite a few people over the last few days, probably from Saturday onwards, that were thinking, oh, do we evacuate? And just at the right time, the water's gone down. But Vic Emergency provides regular updates and advice, which I strongly encourage you to go and follow their pages and follow that advice, as tempting as it might be. Don't th- go through floodwaters. <laughs> you might have to go the long way around quite a few times. There's heaps and heaps of roads closed, so we're just going to have to exercise a bit of patience at the moment.
1: Yeah, it's very tempting if you've got a four-wheel drive in particular and one that you can trust. It's very tempting for people in the bush to say, I'll get through that swollen creek. We'll be right. We'll do it. But boy, oh, boy, has that turned topsy-turvy for so many people.
3: Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Now, meanwhile, in central Victoria, neo-Nazis have marched through Ballarat. I had to read this again when I saw this over the weekend. I've seen the video. Um, It actually looks worse than it sounds. It is a hideous sight, uh, terribly timed, of course, after the October 7 massacres in Israel. What's your view on this?
3: Look, I can't believe that this is happening in the wake of the biggest massacre that jewish people have seen since the holocaust Mm. i honestly think it is evil and what's been amazing for me is i guess like many people i've read extensively about the holocaust and my dominant thought has always been nothing like this will ever happen again and what i've learned in the last two months is that it absolutely could and here in Australia, I think we've we've lived through an incredibly peaceful time in history. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of thinking that that is the natural state of things. And I guess what I've realised is peace actually isn't the natural state of things. Peace is intentional and it comes at a cost. So yesterday I joined thousands of people. In Melbourne and we marched for unity and I really believe that Australia should be a model of unity and recently it hasn't been so we should be an example where people of different faiths and backgrounds and cultures look after each other and I think particularly the Jewish people during this time with the rise of you know neo-Nazis I actually cannot believe that that is happening in this nation they need to not only feel safe but be safe, and that is all of our responsibility.
1: All dressed up, they were in their jackboots and their Provo gear, like, you know, it's almost like a dress-up party. They are such idiots. Yeah. Uh, It is total and utter racism, and I don't know why it should be allowed because when it gets to free speech, you should protect free speech as much as possible, you know? And and as a matter of fact, free speech uh, often reveals the people that we should not listen to, that we should not give time to. But is it free speech when those that are espousing it insist on espousing racist views?
3: Look, we are the party of free speech, but this is hate speech and we don't endorse that. And to answer your question, I guess, is like, well, everyone, yes, everyone's entitled to free speech, but you have to bear the consequences of that. Everything in life we causes a consequence, whether it's good or bad. And I think that anybody that tries to revive the ideals of the Nazis, they need to have consequences to those actions. And, you know, should this be tolerated? Absolutely not. And I've really thought about this from a community perspective. I think, you know, if you see it, you've got to stand up for people, condemn it, stand up for the the people that are being marginalised. Mm. And from a policy perspective, I really believe that the first thing we need to do is we've got to bring back the move-on laws. Before the move-on laws in Victoria were revoked, police could act before there was violence. So if they saw something, they had the right to think, hang on, this is something that could potentially incite violence. We're going to stop it and we're going to move it on. And unfortunately, those those laws were revoked probably eight to ten years ago. Now, that is putting everyone in a bad situation because, A, anything associated with Nazism is targeted and it is hateful and it is murderous. Mm. And it should not be tolerated in our communities. The second thing is because of these move on, because we haven't got these move on laws, police have to escort these people rather than moving them on. And that puts police in a situation where they have to protect these people that are actually spruking hate and violence. And to some people, it actually looks like the police are endorsing it when they're absolutely not. Yeah. So I just think this is horrific. I cannot believe it is happening in our nation, and I hope that it is called out at every level.
1: Yeah. Um, very sad story in the Herald Sun today, the tragedy and neglect of kids in state care. Whistleblower caseworkers have painted a devastating picture of children whose futures we know um, will be terribly bleak. Um, This infuriates me that in 2023, Renee, we allow kids to completely slip through the cracks. There's no one there to foster them. There's no one there for them to go home to. They haven't had a home. But we did all of this in the 50s and we can't do it properly in 2023. Awfully sad.
3: It is so sad. And it's... Interesting timing because the last few weeks I've actually had quite a a lot of people in this space reach out to me Mm -hmm. and I'm meeting with some frontline workers next week. But this is a truly devastating picture where children as young as eight that are in state care are being left alone for up to 10 hours a day without access to food or water or medication that they need. During this time, these children are said to be turning to drugs, Violence and inappropriate uh, relationships with other kids in care, and you would have read in the Herald Sun this morning that even a 12-year-old girl in care has just been charged with murder. Now, these are alarming signs of kids kids in crisis. And emails addressed to the NDIS Commission's Complaint Division and the Department of Family, Fairness, and Housing, there are workers that alleged a workers alleged authorities have failed to address the concerns about kids having poor school attendance, poor hygiene, not having access to medication and food and just those basic daily needs. And now, like you said, whistleblowers are saying nothing has been done about it. These kids are the most vulnerable in our community and we're failing them. So it's just been fascinating. Like I said, a lot of people have reached out to me to talk about this recently and I spoke to a few um, case or um, child protection workers just this morning and one of them said the, can, the system is so overloaded that the consequences are, that is so devastating. There's obviously the staff who feel don't feel safe and they're often assaulted by kids. It's not like it's not something that's just happening every once in a while, it's often. But she said the kids, what we have to realize is these kids are so traumatized. They've been traumatized in their biological home. Um, There's been some, like often the stories are absolutely horrific, Mm. but then it's traumatic for them when they're removed from their home. And then they're often shipped from place to place. I spoke to a a lady this morning that said she worked with a child that is 10 years old and has been in 26 different homes oh no 26 and that is traumatizing in itself mm. another social worker said to me that there's an indigenous family with nine kids and every single one of the children have been placed in different homes so we just don't understand the magnitude of what we're dealing with here so no. i believe the first thing we've got to do is we've got to to find out exactly what is happening. One question I asked, um, well, a few different people on the phone today that were working in the space. I said, well, what needs to be done? And one lady said, well, it, it's more, it's more funding. We really need more funding. Carers just can't be volunteers. Another person said that in some areas, not so much in Australia, but in other areas, professionals leave their work and get paid a proper salary where they actually can rehabilitate kids and bring kids kids through. She said that often when kids come from abusive households, they mirror what they've seen, and then if they're in spaces with other children, they often abuse them. So these kids need one-on-one care. Another great um, thing that we should be looking at is therapeutic homes with trained professionals, where maybe there's just, you know, one or two or three children, Mm. where those practitioners are special, like they're specially trained how to deal with this different, you know, these different scenarios. Yeah. But the big thing that I heard from all of them was that we have to take on what foster carers are saying. And I've heard this, I even heard this in my work as a chiropractor when I treat a lot of these children, Um. The, the foster carers would just say, we are just not given any support or any help. And what happens is they can get so frustrated, so burnt out that they relinquish care. Mm. And then the devastating cycle continues. But one thing that I um, heard from a worker this morning, and I thought this is actually an, an amazing concept that needs to be explored. She said that this issue is too big for an individual. And what it actually needs is it needs a community approach. She said that it rehabilitation for these kids and, you know, to get these kids the most um, loving, caring, stable environment where the families don't burn out also is when there's a community approach where sporting clubs, youth groups, scout groups and community groups are involved. And I think that's something we should be looking at.
1: You know, we hear calls on a daily basis for raw commissions into this, for judicial commissions into that, for inquiries into this and that as well. But would there be anything more fundamentally beneficial than having a proper inquiry in Victoria about kids in state care?
3: I think it is needed. And I I do think that people would be terrified of what would come out. Yeah. I've heard absolute horror stories of, um, you know, different people in, in care. I myself have worked with, you know, different families that particularly residential care, one child I saw was third generation in residential care. That is like a devastating cycle that is so hard to break out of. And I think I think something does need to be done. It's close to 10,000 kids every day in state care. One of the social workers also spoke to me today and she said she once drove around for seven hours with a three-year-old because there was nowhere that he could go. And in the end, they had to take him to a town that was four hours away. Like the, the devastation for these kids, and we know that early years matter. When you look at the economic and social determinants of health, one of the social determinants of health is your experience in those early years of life, when your brain's developing, when you're getting used to your environment. And these kids are really getting uh, the worst start at life. And look, my heart goes out to them.
1: Yeah. Mm. It is so upsetting. I want to take a break. We'll come back and talk further um, about someone who's doing it tough, but not the way these kids are, nothing like that, but um, something a little lighter for our listeners. We'll come back after a quick break with Renee Heath, MLC in Victoria on TNT Radio.
0: Hi, I'm Smokey Bear, and I made an assistant to help you out, because only you can prevent wildfires. Hey, Assistant Smokey Bear, call me Papa Bear, because I'm grilling up dinner. (laughs) Do you get it?
3: Yes, good job.
0: So, what should I do with all these coals?
3: Don't just toss them out. Put them in a metal container, because those embers can start a wildfire.
0: I understand. The stakes are high. Ha, 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 ha. See, Smokey thinks I'm funny.
2: Life doesn't always give you time to
0: change the outcome. Prediabetes does. One in three adults has prediabetes, but with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. And you can change the outcome. Take the one minute prediabetes risk test today. Go to doihaveprediabetes.org this is The Christmas Show on today's News Talk, TNT Radio.
1: All right, I've got Renee Heath with me. Um, something a little bit different that was very, very heavy, but something that needed to be spoken about. And let's hope that the coverage that we saw in the Herald Sun in Victoria today doesn't end there. Let's hope that something decent and constructive comes from it. Now, poor old former chairman of Victoria, Dan Andrews, can't take a trick. Now, for my... Uh, listeners in other parts of the world outside of Australia, they would recognise Dan Andrews. He holds the world record for the most locked down state and province in all the world during COVID-19. Well done to Dan. But, of course, that gets him in trouble now that he's no longer the Premier and he actually deals with the public and normal everyday people. He got bailed up again in public at the weekend at the posh NGV Gala uh, plus, he can't get near a golf course without copping it there as well. That's not what former premiers are usually treated to in Victoria, are they, Renee?
3: No, it's bizarre, but you could see it coming, to be honest. And poor Dan is having a rough time, but I think a lot of Victorians are thinking, oh, oh well, guess what? We had a rough time during COVID. Yes. Now it's your turn. So yes. his legacy lives on. And oh. I think you do have, I do have to mention that under Daniel Andrews, Victorians saw their human rights attacked for probably the first time in their lifetime. Mm. So I think at the start it was understandable. We didn't know what we were dealing with. We were thinking, oh, gosh, what is this COVID thing? Like it's funny talking to people. Sometimes you think, oh, what was it like for you when, you know, this COVID thing started? People were wiping their benches at home, like scared to touch anything, wearing masks in the car. But after that all sort of died down and we knew what we were dealing with, in Victoria, the lockdowns and the, um, the tyranny continued. So I think that people are really bitter about it. Medical records were uncovered. People weren't allowed to go and celebrate the, you know, the life of their loved ones that they had lost, mm. and I just think there are, the consequences have been devastating. I had to look up this lady Jeff Gomes, I think her name is, who had a who had a go at Daniel Andrews. She's an influencer. She looks pretty cool, actually, but she's right. <laughs> there was there, there was there has been incredibly de- um, devastating consequences for people and their children. Yeah, childhood mental illness shot through the roof where kids were dealing with anxiety like they never have before and the poorer outcomes that people have been that children returning to school are seeing there hasn't been the rehabilitation that's needed for that and Mm -hmm. we might see the spin-on effects from this for the next generation it's something that we've got to look at and deal with And look, I think good on you, Jess, you were probably speaking for millions of Victorians who felt the same. (laughs)
1: Yes, exactly. Because what Dan Andrews did, not only was he exceptionally harsh and controlling compared with other jurisdictions in the world, he became exceptionally harsh and controlling by comparison with other jurisdictions in Australia.
3: A hundred percent, and there was so much arrogance around that time. It was yes. just, it was nonsensical. It was arrogant, and the whole time we heard, "Oh, we're just going on the advice of the professionals." Oh, stop. Well, then later on, we found out when we were saying, "Well, where is this advice? Where is this advice?" In many cases, there was none. No. Now that is just not acceptable. You cannot take people's freedoms away. You cannot uncover their medical records. You cannot say that people can't go to work, they can't spend time with friends if there isn't any advice. So, look, um, poor Dan. Do I feel for him? (laughs) I'm not going to answer that question I just asked myself. You don't. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I don't. I think I'm still bitter from the whole experience myself. (laughs) As you deserve to
1: be, as you deserve to be. All right, happy reading with my book and all the very best. We'll catch up next week, Renee, if that's okay.
3: Looking forward to it. Can't wait. Cheers. Good on
1: you. Thank you, Renee Heath. MLC from Victoria for the eastern Victoria region, which, of course, has just gone through that flooding episode. Luckily, it didn't get chronic and people didn't have to be evacuated, which is great news. Uh, A stack of commentary about Dan. Lozzy says, dirty Dan the communist. Well, that's exactly how he behaved. So he can't turn away from these big gala events or the golf course and get dirty with everyday Victorians for getting stuck into him. He was more harsh and more controlling and, you know, didn't didn't like free speech. No one could actually voice their protest over this sort of stuff than any other leader in the world. He became famous for it. The world reacted when he got, when he resigned as Premier of Victoria. (laughs) Who does that? What decision uh, would get that kind of coverage around the world than if it involved Dan Andrews? That's exactly why. Uh, That's how countries become dictatorships. Another comment there. Uh, Nev says, exactly, the establishment create a problem like, oh, Nev wants to talk about the Nazis. Um, He he actually, I think Nev actually reckons that they're false flags. So these Nazis... Are actually not neo Nazis at all, but trying to push government into coming up with draconian measures to stop them. Which is an interesting, which is an interesting uh, theory. I don't know whether I concur with that theory. I certainly have no evidence to say that Woolworths and Coles. I'll be doing some work later in the week on air. You'll be hearing it here um, with a woman who wants to have a national boycott of Woolies and Coles for a day. I won't tell you which day it is, but it's a very special day. And I'll tell you all about that later in the week on the program. Meanwhile, Woolies and Coles will be grilled about the prices they charge for groceries with a Senate inquiry to investigate whether the supermarket giants are price-gouging customers during a cost-of-living crisis. Of course they are. The two major retailers have faced rising customer anger after posting profits of more than $1 billion each for the previous financial year in August, but have repeatedly denied accusations of profiteering and instead attributed higher profits to a range of issues, including internal productivity savings. I call BS. I call BS. Meanwhile, Independent Senator Jackie Lambie has accused Coles and Woolworths of acting like a cartel. Don't they what? and ripping off hard-working Aussies in the lead-up to Christmas. Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt has demanded supermarkets freeze the price of leg ham to give families some certainty ahead of December 25. That's the first thing I've ever heard Murray Watt say that i agreed with, but it makes a great deal of sense. It would not hurt woolies and Coles whatsoever, considering the fact that they make $1 billion per year. Wouldn't hurt them whatsoever, but it would help everyone who's struggling at the moment, which is about three quarters of the population of Australia. It comes as Coles and Woolies look set to face a parliamentary inquiry into whether they are price gouging to get record profits amid cost of living pressures. As I say, I'll be doing a little bit more on that later in the week. So don't miss out on our programs later in the week. Dean Mackin is up next. Following Dean is Lembic Opik and then Katie Hopkins. I've got to get out of here. News is coming up. We'll catch up at the same time tomorrow, hopefully. Make it a date. This is Chris Smith on TNT Radio.